This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Warcross, a new sci-fi thriller from number one New York Times bestselling author Marie Liu. Learn more about the book over at playwarcross.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 278 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Nat Segaloff, author of the new biography, A Lit Fuse, The Provocative Life of Harlan Ellison. Ellison is one of America's best and most prolific short story writers, and is well known to science fiction fans for such classic stories as A Boy and His Dog, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, Repent Harlequin Said the TikTok Man, and Jeff D is Five. He also edited the influential anthologies Dangerous Visions and Again Dangerous Visions, and has written many reviews, essays, and film and TV scripts, including the teleplay for the classic Star Trek episode The City on the Edge of Forever, which is considered by many fans to be the best episode of the original series. But Ellison also has a long history of inappropriate comments, inappropriate behavior, threats, lawsuits, and physical altercations, which have made him a very controversial figure within science fiction fandom. Nat Segalov is a longtime friend of Ellison's and was given unprecedented access to Ellison's papers and to Ellison himself in order to produce a detailed warts and all biography, which we'll be discussing in just a bit. I also want to mention that Nat sent me a three-minute clip from one of his many interviews with Ellison, just to give people a sense of what those conversations were like. And if you're interested, you can check that out at the end of this episode. And today's show is brought to you by Warcross, a new novel from Marie Liu, author of the best-selling Young Elite series and Legend series. In Warcross, Liu draws on her background as a video game artist to tell the story of Amika, a girl who hacks her way into the dangerous depths of a smash-hit video game. And here's a description of the book. It says... For the millions who log in every day, Warcross isn't just a game, it's a way of life. The obsession started 10 years ago, and its fan base now spans the globe, some eager to escape from reality, and others hoping to make a profit. Struggling to make ends meet, teenage hacker Amika Chen works as a bounty hunter, tracking down Warcross players who bet on the game illegally. But the bounty hunting world is a competitive one, and survival has not been easy. To make some quick cash, Amika takes a risk and hacks into the opening game of the International Warcross Championships, only to accidentally glitch herself into the action and become an overnight sensation. Convinced she's going to be arrested, Amika is shocked when instead she gets a call from the game's creator, the elusive young billionaire Hideo Tanaka, with an irresistible offer. He needs a spy on the inside of this year's tournament in order to uncover a security problem, and he wants Amika for the job. With no time to lose, Amika's whisked off to Tokyo and thrust into a world of fame and fortune that she's only dreamed of. But soon, her investigation uncovers a sinister plot, with major consequences for the entire Warcross empire. In this sci-fi thriller, number one New York Times bestselling author Marie Liu conjures an immersive, exhilarating world where choosing who to trust may be the biggest gamble of all. So again, the book is called Warcross by Marie Liu, and you can learn more over at playwarcross.com. Alright, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Nat Segalov. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much, David. It's a pleasure being here. Okay, and so your new book is called A Lit Fuse, The Provocative Life of Harlan Ellison. So how'd this book come about? The strangest way possible. Usually I have to lean on people to do their biographies. In this case, Harlan had read my biography of Arthur Penn, which had just come out in 2010, and he asked me if I'd like to write his biography. Before the sound even died down in the kitchen, which is where he asked me, I'd said yes. And there began a, an adventure of six or seven years that brings us to where we are today. Hmm. And you have, you're, you're friends with Harlan, right? You've known him for a while? Yeah, we had, well, just, we had an ambiguous encounter once during a screening of, uh, that Whitley Stryber disaster. Um, it'll come to me in a minute. Communion. Yeah, communion, yeah. Uh, yeah, but, uh, we, ran into each other quite intently. I was doing a biography for the Arts and Entertainment Network on Stan Lee, and of course Stan and Harlan go back thousands of years, and so we interviewed Harlan. Uh, and I don't know how much profanity I can use on this podcast. As much but, as you want. Uh, thank you very much. We, uh, My crew arrived at his place, which is called the Lost Aztec Temple of Mars, which is up on, uh, on the hill in Sherman Oaks, all set to interview him for Stan and some other stuff we were doing. And he uh, entered the door in his tan bathrobe and said, what are you guys doing here? 
I said, well, we have an appointment to interview you. And he said, well, I'm defrosting some venison in the, in the refrigerator, so you can come in, I guess, until it's thawed. So we started setting up in his room, which is an enormous uh, two-story uh, what can you, museum of, of all sorts of ephemera. It's the sort of thing where anybody who had just left Comic-Con would have come into this place and passed out because it has one of everything, including every book, uh, every comic book, every poster going back, I'm sure, to when they were even before Staples. It was amazing. And we set up in there to interview him. And while we were setting up, I had two male crew members and one female crew member. Harlan told the most blisteringly disgusting joke you could possibly imagine. And the room kind of fell quiet. And I said, oh, great, Harlan. We've been here for five minutes and already you're telling dick jokes. <laughs> well, he smiled and he said, okay, let's do the interview. So when you counter somebody who's got a reputation for toughness, they either kick you out of the house or they back down. And by the time the venison had thawed, we had some wonderful interview footage with him and we were on our way. And Harlan and I simply stayed in touch after that. Uh, he's, as you know, a remarkable man. And uh, he's just been uh, a good friend. Uh, he acted for me. Boy, this is a long answer. He acted for me playing the head of Paramount Pictures, Barney Balaban, in a play called The Waldorf Conference, which I co-wrote with Daniel M. Kimmel, who is a, a published science fiction author, and Arnie Reisman, um, about the origins of the blacklist. And uh, he was wonderful. We did a, a, a reading for the benefit of the Writers Guild and the ACLU, and Harlan was actually a spectacular actor. So there's lots of good reasons to be his friend. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, you mentioned that there's a um, a blurb from Robert Silverberg on this book, and it says something like, you've picked a very difficult subject for a biography. Was that your yeah. experience? No, not at all difficult. Because again, once you break the code, you can speak to anybody about anything. And a trust was established early on. Plus, Harlan has no secrets. Well, there's one secret, he says, that nobody knows except him and the guy who knows the secret. And once that guy is dead, nobody will know it anymore. Hmm. But Harlan is very forthright. You know, he believes that if you tell the truth about yourself, you'll have nothing to lie about, and therefore nobody can ever hold anything against you. And Bob Silverberg, who is, a, of course, a, a fantastic writer and a good person, uh, goes back with Harlan to the very beginning. And maybe, you know, his multi-decade relationship with Harlan has had ups and downs, but mine hasn't. Well, you do say uh, toward the end of the book that um, if he was being coy about anything, I asked it again later. He knew that he was dealing with someone who wouldn't let him get away with anything. Could you talk about that kind of process of what there were some things that you had to sort of pull out of him? Well, as an interviewer, you know this, too, and I'm on guard against it in our one hour conversation. <laughs> but if someone declines to answer a question, you say you let it go, because if you press right then, it's sometimes the last question you'll ask. So you simply have a conversation and you bring it back in later in a different way. Harlan, like many people who've been interviewed a lot, can fall back on prepared answers because it's a lot easier than having to come up with anything new. And when I recognize one of those coming around, I simply said, okay, we've talked about that. Let's move on. So he's, he's very astute. And like anybody who knows what he's doing, he tried to get control of the interviews as I'm trying to get control of this one by talking too much. <laughs> so all I had, to do, so I just asked it again later. And it always works, always works. If you get, if, if people want to say something, they usually will say it if they believe the atmosphere is right. But I'm sure you found that out too, haven't you? Haven't you had to pry things out of people? Uh, I'm not, honestly, I'm a terrible interviewer, so I don't know, uh, you know, if, uh, if I ever, if I ever have uh, done that, but, uh, I should probably, uh, probably learn how to do that. Has anybody ever shut you down when you're trying to ask them a question? Uh, what do you mean? Well, have they ever said, I don't want to answer that? And then there's this stone silence online. No, but I tend to talk about books and I, I talk to people about the books that they've written and I talk to the things that they wrote about in the book. So they tend to, you know, they wouldn't be willing to talk. They wouldn't have put it in the book in the first place if they weren't willing to talk about it. Um, Good point. I have, you know, I guess there are some, I, I can't talk about them, uh, but there, yeah, I guess <laughs> maybe once or twice there have been things like that, but yeah, I can't really go into them. Yeah, but it makes great radio. You know, someone just sort of lays there like a turd and you don't know where to, whether to step in or to walk around. All right. Well, maybe I'll, I'll see if I can drag some secrets out of you during this, uh, during this interview. Terrific. I have plenty of turds. <laughs> um, I did want to ask you though, because you talk about how, um, Harlan is such a complicated person that you were trying to tell the truth and then you're, you're sort of, caught between trying to make not, not trying to make it too glowing and not trying to make it too much of a hatchet job. Could you talk about how you tried to, to walk that line? 
There's a horrible phrase called hagiography, which is essentially giving somebody an apotheosis, a canonization, turning them into a saint. And besides the fact that would make me spit up in my computer, I didn't want to do that to Harlan because, let's face it, a lot of people don't like Harlan. And I wanted to try to get to as many of those people as possible to make a rounded interview. But also, you know, I admire him, I admire his work, and I wanted to be very careful not to gloss over things. And that's why we talk about the dead gopher story. We talk about his temper. We talk about his personality. And we talk about the emotions that he many times get out of control. And uh, again, once he felt safe harbor with me, he was willing to discuss them, perhaps in more detail than he had done before, or even perhaps even with himself. So it wasn't that I was concerned about writing only the good stuff about Harlan. It was that I wanted to have enough of the the negative stuff so that it would balance out the good stuff and create as full a portrait as possible. Does that any way answer your question? Well, yeah. And, and actually, if you're going to mention the dead gopher story, some people listening are probably wondering what the heck that is. So you want to just say what that is? It's so elaborate that only Harlan can tell it, but it involves a problem he had getting a straight answer from one of his publishers. It turned out the comptroller of this publishing house uh, had not given him a complete statement of accounts or something like that, and, and very simply didn't return his phone calls. Uh, Harlan was polite. He sent, you know, did phone calls. He sent letters. When nothing happened, he said, all right, uh, I'll make you answer. And he uh, ob- obtained a dead gopher. And knowing you know, the grounds where he lives, and in fact having similar grounds here, we have tons of gophers here in Southern California. Uh, and, and by the way, if your listeners would like any gophers, we'll be happy to send you as many <laughs> as you want. But Harlan managed to get a dead gopher, and he wrapped it up in a box, and he sent it by slow mail to this comptroller at the publishing house. And he sent it over a long weekend in August to New York. And by the time it got there, first the mail room and then into the comptroller's office, when they opened it, uh, the gopher had ripened to a considerable degree, shall we say, and they had to fumigate the entire office. Uh, some stories say they even had to repaint it. And uh, the comptroller eventually not only sent Harlan the information he wanted, but had a breakdown. So don't mess with Harlan Ellison. Well, and there's an interesting moment toward the end of the book where this story gets confirmed in a way. Neil Gaiman, who's a pretty fair writer himself, was supposed to be on a speaking panel. And one of the people that he encountered in this uh, arrangement said, you know something, I was working at that publishing house, and I guess I was the one who brought the package. Uh, so uh, it, it was true. This is not a, a, a made-up story. I'm not going to begin to say it the way Neil did. He's, he's much more uh, eloquent and funnier than I am with this. But anybody who reads the book can, uh, can find out not only the, 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 the sentence, but the coda at the end of the sentence. Because <laughs> there is some doubt about a lot of these Harlan Ellison stories. You said that lots of people warned you not to take everything he says at face value. Oh, yeah, there were a number of people, uh, and I wish more of them had spoken with me because they didn't want to be on the record, I guess, uh, that uh, you know Harlan, say, embellishes the stories, especially if the person who shared it with him is no longer able to counter it, you know, they're dead or, or otherwise. I didn't find that in any of the cases. And there are some fairly standard ones, you know, did Bill Semenovich, uh, who was a, another science fiction person, Try to pick a fight with Harlan in the Bellevue Stratford Hotel in in uh, Philadelphia one day. Well, yeah, there were witnesses to that one. One of whom was Bob Silverberg. Did Harlan actually push a fan of his down an elevator shaft? No, he didn't. But that story won't go away. Did he try to get a baby elephant into a hotel or something? That just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, how much writing did he do on the Oscar, which is legendary as the worst movie Hollywood ever made about itself? Well, he wrote the first draft, and he was rewritten. And all of these little Harlan stories, and, and there's tons of them out there. I just didn't have room for them all or ability to elucidate them. You know, when he was doing college lectures on the road, he was single at the time, and he probably had a lot of encounters. Well, what were they? Well, you know, that brings other people into it, too. And it was just a matter of tracking a lot of these down. But I wanted just enough to show how colorful the man is and how many of them I could put into the book. Uh, it was a, a matter of space and really whether I can confirm them. Well, you, you, there, there was one person you talked to who said that Harlan told the story about riding the rails with him. And he says, I've never ridden the rails with Harlan or anyone else. Yeah, yeah. He ran away from home a number of times, according to legend. And, uh, you know, maybe he rode different rails. I don't know. It, it's really hard to track down who might have been on a train at the time, whether he drove nitroglycerin or really or, or saw about it in the movie Sorcerer. You know, you don't know. 
He did odd jobs. He uh, flipped burgers. He did short order cooking. He once promised me the best fried salami sandwich I'd ever had. We haven't done that yet. But a lot of other things he has uh, he has delivered. He's just a very complex man, you know. Well, right. And so let's uh, talk about his writing because one of the things that he's very unusual in is that he writes fast. He's, he's very proud of his ability to write fast and on demand. I see in his manuscripts, he has so few errors that it's, uh, it's frightening that he can be so accurate as a typist. And he's a fast one too. He's able to go right from his brain through his fingers. And he tends to turn in first drafts, which if you're a writing teacher, you often tell your students not to do. But his first drafts come right out of his brain and his heart. And they're quite good. In fact, there's uh, a book that his wife had edited called uh, Eight in Eighty, which is it uh, came out two years ago. It's a big black book with white writing. And it's his story, the best story she feels from each of the decades in which he'd been writing. Uh, and they're the uh, original type manuscripts with his hand corrections where necessary. And you can see, as you would see in a composer's first draft, where he had little palimpsests or anything else that uh, would have changed what he wrote. But he is a machine. He can write. He can think. He thinks up stories in his sleep sometimes and wakes up and writes them. He has a perch up on top of the lost Aztec temple of Mars, which is his house, and he will put on some Ennio Morricone music or something else from his vast record collection and just start writing as, as the mood strikes him. In fact, uh, I think it was Neil Gaiman told one story where he was visiting Harlan and there was somebody else downstairs waiting for him, an editor, and Harlan says, I'll be down in a couple of minutes to entertain him. So Neil was talking very pleasantly with his editor, and then Harlan came down with a story that had been long overdue, and the editor was there to finally collect. Harlan hadn't gotten around to reading, writing it, so he simply sat down and wrote it while the editor was waiting for it. He's that facile. And the range of his writing goes from things he has written under glass, which is when he sits in the store window of a bookstore or on a convention floor, and he simply types right there, either an original story based on his own thought or an original story based on a line somebody gives him, uh, the purpose being to show that writing is a craft, not a, an esoteric art. And he'll write while people are watching. He will also just go off in the middle of a conversation and say, excuse me, and he goes and, and starts writing something. And his output of about 1,700 stories, reviews, columns, essays, and scripts attests to his amazing ability just to sit down and do the damn work. Right, and he really has this interesting um, focus on the short story form, which I really admire because short stories are my favorite form of fiction and are mm. often these days sort of marginal. Um, but I think it's just so interesting and cool that he has written so many short stories and focuses on that form in particular. Short stories were the way a lot of authors got their first sales in the 1950s. In Harlan's case, it was to genre magazines you know, amazing science fiction and some of the classics, he wrote long-form novels to a certain extent, but his attention span is so fired up that he doesn't like to write novels. And in fact, he's only written a handful of them. They were a lot of juvie stuff, a lot of pulp um, uh, back in, in, in the 50s just to get published and, you know, when you're paid a penny a word or, or whatever it is. Uh, he focuses on the short stories because he bores easily, and a short story pretty much encapsulates everything he has to say about a particular subject. And as you know from having short stories as favorites, they're really about an incident more than a full-length narrative. And they give you a character sketch, and they give you something that completely describes what has happened. But Harlan does it so completely that it's very hard to expand them into, say, a longer form. In fact, I've tried a couple of times to take some of his short stories and expand them into full-length screenplays. And you can't do it because you have to pad and add so much and add so many other incidents. And you realize in examining them and analyzing them and deconstructing them that when Harlan writes a short story, that's all that has to be said about that subject. We've even tried connecting different short stories to make, you know, to extend a, a plot line. But his characters are so discreet and so different that it's very hard to give the attributes of one character to another which may explain why so little of his work has reached the screen. A Boy and His Dog is really the only Harlan Ellison story that has officially reached the screen. The others have gone into Twilight Zone or Outer Limits or, or uh, Star Trek. But uh, as far as feature movies, very, very few. His short stories are that self-contained. So, sorry, you, you were saying that you've personally uh, worked on adapt, trying to adapt some of Harlan's stories for film and TV? 
Yeah, I've, I've tried doing it. Um, we haven't, it just hasn't worked. I mean, I've done it, but they, they're, they're poo. Uh, you really can't. You can't expand his stuff beyond what's really there. So they'll make good half hour or hour long teleplays. And I've tried pushing some of those, but, uh, it just, it just doesn't happen. Uh, plus television doesn't like the anthology form. They call it the A word. Television executives seem to think that you have to have the same cast in a continuing story every week. And we said, well, okay, we'll give you the same cast. We'll just give you a different story. And they say, no. So we've tried to get the Harlan Ellison Playhouse going for several years, each week adapting one of his stories. And uh, nobody nobody seems to want to do an anthology. So it's, it's, it's tough going in that sense because Harlan has a wealth of material. And people have been optioning it for years and adapting it. And it just doesn't come out. Yes, because anthology shows, that's my favorite kind of TV show, too. So I guess I'm, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, so often far not behind well the served curve, by Hollywood. Uh, no, no. I mean, the, the, when you think about all the great anthology shows, U.S. Steel Hour, the, the Playhouse 90, everything during that flourished during the 50s and 60s, where you really gave birth to a whole generation of writers, actors, and directors, uh, that doesn't happen anymore. And it seems like Hollywood, they're not so big on intelligent science fiction either no it's all either bug-eyed monsters or mad scientists i suppose i mean there are people like jim cameron who actually tries to expand the genre but he's got to put a lot of other stuff in there and there are people who want to do it you know uh joe straczynski has been trying to get some features going these are people who know that science fiction is more than spaceships and they try to put a lot of thought and feeling into what they do but you know the audience these days especially the international audience wants action and science fiction is not really about action as much as it's about consequences and pondering the issues. Yeah. I mean, there does seem to be this issue of Harlan Ellison and Hollywood is kind of a match made in hell because it's this <laughs> um, sort of absolute perfectionism and commitment to craft and art coming, running head on into people who don't really care about that stuff at all. Uh, and it's just a very combustible combination. Harlan is a writer who knows what he's doing when it comes to writing narrative prose. When it comes to screenwriting or teleplay writing, he has certain beliefs that don't necessarily coincide with those of the people who do productions. Now, when you go back to something like Burke's Law or some of the, the, the stuff he wrote in the 60s, you know, for Aaron Spelling and other people, that seemed to work out okay. But when he tries doing something more sophisticated, there seem to be problems. You know, television is a collaborative medium, like a gangbang. And about as pleasant. And that's that's one of the problems doing it. Uh, and Harlan really knows what he's doing. He says, okay, if you give me a budget, I'll write to that budget. And then they'll say, okay, here's here's what we do. Harlan, write anything you want. We can handle it. So he writes anything he wants. He turns in the script and they say, oh, this is too expensive. And Harlan says, well, you should have said something about it. And so he's not very much liked. And, of course, there's a legendary story of when he was writing for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which turned out to be one of the worst episodes. He had a run-in with a guy named Adrian Samoth, who was the ABC television censor, who said, you can't say this, you can't say that. Then he got into things, don't make her a redhead, make her a blonde, uh, just micromanaging the whole thing. And this was at the end of a long, long boardroom table in one of Irwin Allen, who was the producer's offices. There was a model of the Seaview submarine, which was made out of metal, which was hanging in the middle of the room. The Seaview was the submarine that all the people in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea were sailing around the world to either reignite the Van Allen belts or whatever the hell the, the television series was. And this guy was giving so much grief that Harlan, sitting at one end of the table, simply got up, ran across the table, toward this censor, slipped on some papers, fell to his stomach, and sailed right into him, in the process pulling the sea view down on top of the guy, breaking his hip. Harlan was carted out of the room and held sequestered in the side office while the ambulance came and took this censor away. Uh... Needless to say, Harlan didn't work on the series anymore. Well, this whole story is in the book. <laughs> well, right. And you suggest that maybe part of the reason that more of his work hasn't been adapted into film and TV is because of incidents like that, that people are just afraid to work with him because of his personality. That's the thing. In fact, we had one or two turndowns from prospective publishers before New England Science Fiction Association Press pulled it in. Uh, the people simply said, I don't want to work with Harlan. I've done it in the past. And we assured them, well, this is the working with me, not with Harlan. And there was one woman, and I can't mention her name or the publishing house, but I told Harlan about this, about how she simply wanted nothing to do with him. And he says, I'll tell you why. 
Her father was in publishing, and I caught him cheating writers out of their international royalties. That's why she doesn't want to work with me. So there are reasons for all sorts of antipathies. You also uh, said in another interview that you thought that the difficulty you had shopping this book was related to just a lack of respect for science fiction among, quote-unquote, mainstream publishers. I think that's part of it, yes. You know, publishers will only publish something that can, can conveniently fit onto a shelf in a bookstore. Now, science fiction is a genre, and you'd think that this would go right on there, but it's a biography. And A, the number of biographies of writers is fairly small. The number of biographies of science fiction writers, and we're not talking memoirs or autobiographies, we're talking biographies, is infinitesimal. And the other thing we found, and this goes back to a gambit I had with Leonard Nimoy and John Delancey, I'll talk about if you want me to, that people like reading science fiction, but they don't necessarily like reading about science fiction. And so the analytical books, uh, the scholarly books don't always work, but the science fiction itself will still sell. I mean, that's interesting because I like reading about science fiction. I mean, that's uh, why I do this podcast is so I can read books about science fiction and, you know, science fiction as well. But I love that stuff. Well, I, I, hope was... get... <laughs> I want more of your number. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, well, hopefully there's some people are listening to this who are also interested in, in biographies of science fiction authors. And I mean, and I interview, you know, people who've written critical studies of uh, science fiction authors and stuff. So, I mean, you know, and we have a fair number of listeners. So there are people out there, but um, I think it's just, you know, people don't find out about books like this. It's hard to just get the word out about them. Yeah, we're finding that too. Everybody, look, everybody gives science fiction a hard time. They give science fiction fans an even harder time, you know, living in their parents' basement and not getting out much and having pocket protectors. And you'd think the Big Bang Theory would have done something about reversing that. But I found, and I've dealt with a number of people, you know, I had a Star Trek experience earlier, and I found that science fiction fans are probably the best read, the most intelligent, the most diligent, the most compassionate. Because they've been downtrodden for a long time, too, and establishing their credibility. But I've had some just wonderful feedback from people, even those who point out errors in the book, you know, typos and things like that, that I wouldn't trade that for anything. And I n never encountered that when I'm writing about regular film people or other people that I've written about. The science fiction community is wonderfully cohesive and uh, enormously supportive, I find. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly been my experience. And you make the point in the book, too, that when Harlan Ellison, when he was doing all these uh, all this public speaking and all these talk show appearances, uh, he was just giving lie to this notion of all science fiction fans as being shy and, uh, you know, awkward and never leaving their basement and so on, because he was he's like the complete opposite of that. Right. He's very outgoing. And I think he inspired a lot of other people, not only to understand science fiction, but to even try writing it themselves. You know, when he was teaching in the Clarion Writers Workshop, for example, he brought a number of people into the fold, whether it's Alan Brennard or Olivia. I've just gone dry on her name. She's a marvelous writer. She's passed now. I mean, this is what, what you do if you're, if you're a good writer and you're as verbal as Harlan is, you, you want to give back and encourage other people. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly, one of the things that made me interested in doing a podcast like this is just growing up, I would watch Harlan on Bill Maher and stuff like that. And I was just, it was just always so exciting to see a science fiction writer on TV talking about politics and all sorts of issues of the day as well. You notice something that's, that's, that's very good that you did notice that is that Harlan has other subjects, but also that he's out there. You know, a lot of writers, and I'm sure you interview your share of them, only come out when they have a book out or only are there because they're trying to sell something or, or whatever. Harlan was a personality as well as a writer, not only on Bill Maher's show, but especially on Tom Snyder, the late night show that he used to do, or uh, Bill Hoder, who ran Hour 25 here on radio. Harlan was himself, and he was always available in the Golden Rolodex to be a guest on any of these shows. That shows how wide-ranging his interests were and how he was able to accommodate and apply himself to everybody. He says in the book, he, uh, you quote him as saying that he lectured for over a thousand hours on the Equal Rights Amendment? That's what he says when it was up for grabs in the late 1970s. He would do a regular tour and he would lecture as part of his, his campus talks or just go out to make appearances and show support. In fact, in Arizona, where the state was not going to pass the Equal Rights Amendment, he was in Phoenix at a convention, he didn't stay in any of the hotels, really. He wanted to be in a house trailer or something because he didn't want to show that he was giving commerce to a state that didn't support the ERA. He has very strong political... Yeah, you know, I'm talking about him like he's dead. He's very much alive. I talked to him yesterday. I wonder... Let's, let, let's go through and change all the past tense stuff to the present tense. 
Right. Well, I mean, we are talking about stuff that was a few decades ago with the oh the yeah talk, the talk show, the Bill Maher and stuff like that. Yes, yes. Harlan doesn't make appearances now. As you may know, he had a stroke about uh, well in October of uh, 2014, which took away his mobility, but not his speech and not his thinking. So he's he's had a somewhat reduced mobility, and um, now is just shepherding other projects through and and I think picking up loose ends. But uh, he's still very much Harlan, still very much thoughtful and combative when necessary. So what did you talk to him about yesterday? Well, one of them was, or was I able to use a uh, portion of an interview on, on your your show that we had recorded? And, of course, he said yes right away. So if we go to that, you'll see the dynamic between Harlan and me as we talk about the creative instinct and about each person's worth and the contribution that each of us might make to our society. We're not talking about science fiction so much. We're talking about what a human being is worth, which I guess is what science fiction is. So he allowed us to use that portion of the interview. And just otherwise, we talk about, uh, you know, how you doing? How's it going? How do you feel? How's your back? You know, stuff that uh, two old guys will talk about. So, I mean, how how is he doing? Oh, he's uh, you know not as active as he wants to be. Um, watches some television, listens to a lot of jazz. And, um, you know, tries to keep the world from spinning off in the wrong direction. Does he have any thoughts about current politics? Yes, and I'm not going to <laughs> go into them now, but we, we kind of agree that the, uh, the, uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth. But let, let's say we have differences of opinion about uh, how things are running. We agree, and uh, a lot of the country doesn't. <laughs> Yeah. It's a it's well, a mess out there. Yeah, well, you mentioned this um, hour twenty five show that Mike Hodell did. I've kind of I've kind of come across references to it. There are a couple clips from it and things on YouTube, but I have not been able to listen to much of it online. Have you? Did you ever listen to that show? Do you um Do you know if there's any way to listen to it? I arrived in Los Angeles after it had long since gone off the air, and as far as I know, if there are archives, they're not accessible. They haven't been posted. The fellow who's running it now doesn't even check his email because I tried to get to him. Uh, they do maybe one or two shows a year, if that, and that's what the website says. But uh, it's it's just gone into into the ether, unless anybody taped it at home. You know, so much of what happened on radio is just gone forever because nobody had a tape recorder in those days. And interestingly, this is a tangent, video technology progressed far beyond radio technology so that anybody could have a VCR starting, I guess, in the 1980s late 70s and record things but nobody ever encountered a time-shifting way to record radio programs and so nobody recorded radio unless they were there to press the start button so a lot of stuff is lost yeah that's just such a shame because you talk you say that harlan was uh, hosting it for a while and their guests mm -hmm. were like theodore sturgeon and douglas adams and it would be a little great to listen to that maybe somebody has a home recording they made you know a lot of us who started in audiovisual, you know, we ran the projector back in fourth grade and stuff. A lot of us uh, had tape recorders, and we would tape record things. So maybe there are some collectors out there who can bring some of the Hour 25 broadcasts to light. Yeah, yeah I sure hope so. Um, I did also want to talk a little bit about how, going back to the um, Harlan and Hollywood, that I would really encourage people, if you've only – you mentioned A Boy and His Dog. If, you've only, if people have only seen the movie of that, I would strongly encourage people to read – the original story, because particularly the ending is so much more affecting and powerful and haunting, whereas in the movie they just turn into this really groan-inducing joke. This is true. LQ and Harlan uh, had some disagreements about that. And although LQ did a remarkable job in bringing the story to the screen, adding a number of things that Harlan hadn't put in there, Harlan was sort of you know okay with it. Harlan had started writing the script, and then apparently he got writer's block and couldn't adapt it. So LQ, this we're talking about LQ Jones, who uh, directed the film, um, had another writer come in and, uh, and and finish it. And so it's a kind of a cockamamie combination of what Harlan's themes were and what LQ wanted to do. And they all came to a head at the end, when the end is widely considered misogynistic, far, far different from what Harlan had wanted. And it's been a matter of debate ever since, Harlan leading the debate, and LQ, I think, digging in his feet as well, as you would expect an artist to do. But certainly, a boy and his dog is one of those films that you sh should read the uh, the original novella along with, as well as uh, the other two stories that Harlan has written, um, called "Bloods a Rover," where he gives a prequel and a kind of a sequel to it. It uh, it is a standalone work, but the other pieces also act like bookends to to frame it. 
And has that ever come out as a omnibus edition with the three different stories in one book? Well, graphic novel was in graphic novel form, and uh, I believe they were published. You know, and I'm, I'm I'm not a good bibliographer, so I don't know which of Harlan's stories appeared where. But you can go online and find them for Harlan Ellison works, and just do a, a Google search for his stuff. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention was iRobot. Uh, Harlan's iRobot script really stands out to me as just one of the examples of Hollywood not respecting science fiction. Oh, that's an example of really the worst of both all possible worlds. The mo movie that came out with Will Smith called iRobot had nothing at all to do with, uh, with the book iRobot. Harlan had done his own adaptation of it, but he made the mistake of making it faithful to the original book. Uh, which included a middle-aged woman as the protagonist, which is something that, that Hollywood can't deal with. Can't deal with women anyway, but a middle-aged woman who was smart was not the sort of a character they thought would make a commercial movie. But he did have the whole script published, and it's a wonderful companion piece to the original book, I, Robot. Yes, I mean, just the idea that, you know, he wrote this script, and it was approved by Isaac Asimov himself. And then not only do they not make that script, but they make this other movie and they just tack the name onto it. It's just so disrespectful. Yeah, well, welcome to Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mentioned before the adventures with Alien Voices, which is the Leonard Nimoy and John Delancey gambit that I was involved in. I, I'm bringing this because um, we had talked with Harlan about using some of his works, but uh, we were told by our publisher, Simon & Schuster Audio, that we had to do long form. I would have loved to have done an anthology of some of Harlan's stuff. Alien Voices was a company formed in 1996 by Leonard Nimoy, John Delancey, and me. I think you've heard of them more than me. <laughs> and it was to create audiobooks for Simon & Schuster Audio, uh, which were adaptations of classic science fiction stories, such as by H.G. Wells and Conan Doyle um, and Jules Verne, acted, because they were dramatized, acted by Star Trek actors. And so we did a number of titles, and we discovered something. And this is why um, I was, we, we were, you and I were talking about people wanting science fiction, but not about science fiction. We did multi-voice stories, highly and beautifully ended produced, music by Peter Erskine, just wonderful stuff. We did Voyage, we did um, Journey to the Center of the Earth, The Time Machine, The Lost World, and others. Beautifully acted. We had William Shatner in some. We had, I mean, the whole Star Trek cast. And uh, we found out from Simon & Schuster that two kinds of audiobooks don't sell well. One is science fiction, and two are multi-voice. And we had done both in one. It was a bad experience, but it taught us an awful lot about how science fiction reaches the public. And that is, as mainstream publishers simply didn't know how to handle it. And these are the people who handle the Star Trek books. But it just didn't work out. But it taught us that science fiction has to be pure, which we certainly did, has to be high profile, which we certainly had. But, um, you know, we just didn't connect with the public. What, what year was that 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 came out? We started, we did 96, 97. You can still find a lot of them either on eBay or probably Amazon has some used ones. We did them both on CD and in audio cassette. Remember audio cassette? <laughs> they were very nicely produced productions. I, I wrote the scripts. Then John Delancey and I went through them and made them a little more actor friendly. Now, Leonard directed some, John directed some. Uh, uh, we had them done by a number of people. And uh, they're wonderful, and they're they're very, very faithful to the original books. I mean, I wonder if that's still true, that science fiction and multi-voice doesn't do well on audio. I mean, there are a lot of really popular science fiction audio drama podcasts right now. I mean, they're just, just extremely successful. And I really wonder yes. if the digital revolution has changed the dynamics of that, because as you were saying, when they're on audio cassettes, those things used to be just prohibitively expensive for most people. And if it's on, uh, if it's on Audible or if it were to get on Audible, now it might um, find a new audience. That's the danger of being a bit ahead of the curve, which is, of course, what science fiction has been by definition since the very beginning. You have to bring people into your world. And uh, we have a world out there. We're still waiting for people to open the damn door. Yeah. Do, do you have any idea if those are um, on Audible or will be or at digital in any form, form of digital? I honestly don't know. Um, the, the company is defunct. And, of course, with Leonard being defunct also, we don't really know what's happening to all the copyrights and everything. I imagine his estate controls it because he was the big guy in there. And, by the way, let me say, Leonard Nimoy is, is as good and kind as you've heard everybody talking. He um, was just an, an absolute 
I, I can't begin to speak highly enough of him. And then the, having the privilege of working with him for a couple of years was remarkable because he just had this aura about him that made you know you could trust him and, and just be, uh, be in a wonderful place. John Delancey is a hot ticket, very, very smart, very funny. We're close friends. And he also is somebody that I would trust with my life. It's unusual you get to be involved with these people um, who are also known for science fiction. Yeah, you know, I interviewed Adam Nimoy this past year. He did a documentary um, for The mm-hmm. Love of Spock. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, yes, yes. It's a beautiful portrait. Yeah, uh, I, I met Adam casually once, a nice guy, does a lot of directing also. He's even done some Gilmore Girls. So he's uh, has, has, his interests are as wide as his father's. Yeah. Um, actually, speaking of the audiobooks, though, um, I saw that Harlan, a lot of his college lectures that he did were recorded and released on uh, LPs or something, I think. Or maybe they were on, I think they were on CD later. Do you have any idea if those uh, will ever show up on uh, on downloadable format? Only if somebody pays him. He's, uh, you, you may have heard he's, he's pretty, um, tight about the, the rights to his stuff. He had a long, long lawsuit that he won with America Online because somebody had published some of his works online and without the permission. I don't think much of Hardwell's stuff has been put out there on audio for download. You can still get it on, on CD. And I think, uh, well, I doubt if anybody has discs anymore, records from the Harlan Ellison Recording Society, but also you can buy them in bookstores. They're called Ellison on the Road, and there's any number of CDs that are recordings of his college lectures. He did record an awful lot of those. He also has done some terrific, and I'm trying to remember because I'm in the wrong room to find it now, terrific readings of his works. He's recorded a couple of collections of them, and they're absolutely letter-perfect interpretations of his own writing, read by the author who knows what he's doing in front of a microphone. The one he did for Paladin of the Lost Hour that won all kinds of awards on the new Twilight Zone uh, is just remarkable. But but he's got about 20 or 30 out there of, of his recordings, which are just phenomenal. Uh, and I suppose they're still available. Again, you do an Amazon search, you can find them. Yeah, no, I've heard some of those, and they're great. So they're, they definitely are out there um, if people go looking for them. Um. A couple people in this book suggest that if Harlan had written more novels, that he would be better known than he is. What do you think about that? His agent was one of the people who suggested that. And I think you're right, because novels are something that get more coverage. They can be adapted to movies more readily or optioned, at least. But Harlan says his attention span is just too short. You know, he he gets bored if he has to write something that long. I know he's ground out some of them for the juvie market, you know, which is the... um, uh, pulp market, but he prefers the short story format, and I think you're exactly right. I think that if he'd written more novels, he'd be better known for them. Although he's pretty well known now, he would certainly have a higher profile, and perhaps even be getting more royalties, because these novels keep on coming back. But um when you get bored, you get bored. I mean, even when he's writing his own stories, if he finds that he knows what's going to happen on the next page, he'll purposely change direction so that he even baffles himself, and then he has to dig his way out of a plot corner. That's Harlan. He just has such an agile mind that he can do that to himself and wind up with a far better story. Right. And you also mentioned that, I mean, there, he made efforts at different points to distance himself from the label science fiction um, because it was hurting him in different ways. You talk about this uh, New York Times book editor who just refused outright to read a Harlan Ellison book just because it was labeled science fiction. Yeah, that's really there was. Um, he, he couldn't get his, his name in the New York Times. He couldn't get any review from his works. And when you're done, I mean, at this point, he's done over 120 books. You'd think the Times would have reviewed one of them. But no, it has this stigma. Again, science fiction is for little kids or for people, you know, we discussed the Geek Squad before. Um, that's, that's the reputation science fiction has. And yet, it's probably the most provocative form of fiction that's being written because it addresses world issues in a form that hits you from a different angle. But, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, aren't I? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly agree with that. Um, And I would have thought those attitudes were changing um, somewhat. I mean, you know, the New Yorker did a um, science fiction issue a couple years ago. But you say that even um, Harlan sent them a story, um, the the tiny man story. And I'm not sure what year that was, uh, maybe around 2010 or so, but that they rejected it. It's a couple years, yeah. Fairly recent. Yeah, they they reject. Um, it just, it's, who knows? Who knows? You know, a, a lot of what gets into magazines is all clickish kind of stuff, too. You gotta be, uh, you gotta drink in the right taverns on Third Avenue if you're gonna get into the New York magazines and, and that sort of thing. They're also run by people who don't get out a lot. 
they're now into more sensational. This is all the magazines. More sensationalism, uh, more contemporary because they have to fight the fact that online is really beating them to all of the, uh, all of the deadlines and all of the news. You'd think that the New Yorker would be something literary, but now they're trying to get online and be just as high a profile there. Uh, it's, it's no longer the way it was that William Sean was running it. Let's put it that way. Hmm. Um, so what's going on, I guess, with Harlan's, um, projects? You have, you mentioned a couple things that, um, like J. Michael Straczynski is trying to do Repent Harlequin to the TikTok man? Yeah, uh, they, they, Joe did an adaptation of that and they were trying to take it out for feature work. But then uh, there was a picture called In Time that uh, Justin Timberlake was in that was remarkably similar to the concept for Repent Harlequin. And that bombed at the box office so big that a story similar to that was considered to be uh, not something you'd want to take out at the moment. So I think Joe and Harlan are sitting on that, and uh, maybe they'll bring it out later in in the proper form, a form that works. And I, I don't think Justin Timberlake will be connected with it. <laughs> uh, have you have you looked at that script at all? No, I, that's something that uh, is theirs. I think Joe Straczynski has it. You know, people stop by his house all the time and option stuff. I mean, the one that I'm astonished nobody has made is "I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream." That's you know the computer. Drama of all time. There was even a, a computer game based on it, but nobody's been able to crack that or nobody who has optioned it. And they do pay Harlan option money has been able to come up with a screenplay that somebody will buy. Uh, it's just one of those things. I've tried a couple of them. Uh, I have my own uh, ideas for how some of Harlan's stuff can be adapted. That hasn't, hasn't sold. You know, you take them around, you pitch. Sometimes they've heard of Harlan. Sometimes they've really heard of Harlan. Sometimes they haven't heard of Harlan. You can even call it speculative fiction, but it's very hard to get anything going in this town now. I thought it was also interesting that you say that Lewis Black says he was inspired by Harlan's TV criticism. I guess so. I, I couldn't get to Lewis. <laughs> we went to high school together. Oh. I was, that wasn't able to get to it within the deadline. Uh, he's a remarkable, remarkable comic and, and social critic. Uh, and I know Harlan, you know, when he was writing The Glass Tit and The Other Glass Tit, uh, was taking on the, the networks for the vapidity of their programming at a time that Harlan himself was working for those networks. So he didn't mind not only biting the hand that fed him, but biting it off of the wrist. <laughs> and, and I guess they don't read because nobody ever complained about it. He never lost a job because he wrote about his own network. Well, it's interesting because you, you say that actually television was really good in the beginning when it was only being aimed at more of a cosmopolitan audience. And then as it, as they were trying to get everybody, um, they kind of had to dumb everything down. And did he this is my theory. Yeah, I think, um, I think Carl Reiner may have been saying this too. Um, and that is a television at the very beginning was only in the major cities because that's where you had two things. You had an urban population that had enough money to buy the sets. You know, sets cost three to five hundred dollars. And back in the 1950s, that was a month's income. And, uh, it also had the educational level because of the, Again, the, the metropolitan nature of the audiences. So the first dramas that were, were produced, the first television shows that were produced and really given a lot of publicity were those that reflected modern problems. You know, they were sometimes called kitchen dramas because people like Horton Foote and Patty Chayefsky and, and others would, would write stories set in, in urban houses, uh, apartments because that's what they were writing for. That's where the audience was. And this also built up the legitimacy of the new television industry because they wanted to show that they weren't just pandering or trying to sell, you know, brassiers or, or cigarettes. They were also trying to enrich the public, and this would get the government off their back. Uh, and then once the television show started catching on and affiliates began opening up in the smaller cities around America, they realized that those audiences were not as sophisticated as those living in the urban areas. And so the programming had to be I hate the word dumbed down, let's just say made more general, to enfranchise the new viewers who weren't as sophisticated or simply didn't have the experience of those living in the urban centers. And that's how television wound up becoming in the 1960s with the Beverly Hillbillies and programs like that that were aimed not only at the lowest common denominator, but at a less sophisticated intelligence. That has changed, as you know, with uh, cable, when people who have the money to buy the Showtimes and the HBOs and, and the Netflix uh, along with the money, in many cases, comes the educational level. And that's why the new premium stations are able to offer premium shows that are certainly more interesting than most of the feature movies being made today. 
And that's why we have the Game of Thrones and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say is that now that the audience is fracturing so much, um, it, it, it makes sense for some shows to be aimed at a really specific, sophisticated audience. So, like, that's what uh, sci-fi, I think, is trying to do right now with shows like The Expanse, where it's not aimed at a general audience really at all. It's aimed really at hardcore science fiction fans. Um, that's correct. Yeah. Or, or the new Star Trek series is, is aimed at, well, I'm not really sure who it's aimed at, <laughs> but, um, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to expand the audience at the same time. They're trying to keep the, the Trekkies, Trekkers and Trekkists. And apparently there's a difference among them, uh, on board. You know, it's very hard to do that because first you have to attract attention. Then you have to please the audience that you attract. And sometimes the audience you attract is not the audience that will appreciate the product. It's all, it's all a marketing problem. I mean, have you talked to Harlan all, at all about whether he thinks TV is starting to finally get better? No, we just throw up our hands. We don't bother. <laughs> I mean, why, you know, if, if you've got cavities, why should you walk into a candy store? Yeah. Um, I also, I mean, want to mention that the most, um, sort of long awaited book basically in science fiction history is this last dangerous visions. Uh, what do you think about uh, yeah. that? Well, it probably won't come out in Harlan's lifetime. I have seen it in the sense of seeing the file drawers where uh, the, the folders are kept. Um, and there are many reasons for it. Harlan is simply tired of discussing it, but I've spoken about it with others. Um, a writer named Christopher Priest has written a marvelous monograph about it, which, although it's not particularly flattering to Harlan, has a, a tremendous chronicle of, of what's going on and all the announcements Harlan made over the years. Uh, the Last Dangerous Visions is a sequel to, again, Dangerous Visions, which was a sequel to Dangerous Visions, which was the compendium, the anthology, if you will, of science fiction stories written by young writers who blew the doors off of science fiction. They were able to use sex, profanity, provocative ideas, the sort of thing that editors didn't like. And Harlan said, no, go ahead and do it. Write what you want. And it literally changed the direction of written science fiction. And every single person you ask about it who writes science fiction today agrees. Well, The Last Dangerous Visions took an awful long time to come out, partly because Harlan was clearing the rights to all the works, partly because he was so interested in the new writing that was being done that he was acquiring more than he could ever publish, but also because Harlan was writing introductions and outros to the stories. And Harlan's introductions are as provocative as the stories he writes himself. People would buy the Dangerous Visions series to see what Harlan was writing about the works. And... He just, he wrote most of the introductions, but not all of them. And then other stuff happened. You know, there were divorces. There was, there were lawsuits about other things. There was simply meeting deadlines. And, uh, it, it slipped from his grasp. Perhaps it would be put together by somebody else. There's been talk of Jason Davis, who is the person who edits his works now, you know, looking at it. But I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is it's sitting there. Uh, most of the work has been published independently anyway by the authors. Harlan did not cheat anybody on it. He paid for them twice. Uh, he licensed it from the appropriate people, and they simply haven't uh, haven't come out yet. So it, they are out there pretty much, although not under the name Dangerous Visions. They're out as individual entries. Yeah, I mean, you sort of suggest in the book that in order for it to come out, basically some editor would have to devote a year of their life to putting it all together, and then a publisher would have to underwrite the whole thing, you said? That's right, because the advances were paid and then repaid and then unpaid and then depaid. And I don't know <laughs> who would have to be publishing it now or what other, you know, how much, whether it's in turnaround, which is a, a, a Hollywood term, who would have to bail it out and then bring it out. Uh, and, and even if there's an audience for it, you know, this stuff, which was provocative 20 years ago, might be old hat now. We don't really know. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, like like one of the people in the book says, it would be great just to see Harlan's notes about the stories, if nothing else, because, you know, because his uh, writing about stories has always been so interesting. I agree with you. And uh, by gosh, there there are those manila folders in the drawers. <laughs> I know it's, it's kind of maddening. I think Stephen King addresses this, too. You know, they say, well, you've written it. Why can't we read it? And I think King has said, because it's mine. And others feel the same way. Just because a, a writer has written something doesn't mean the public has a right to it. It's frustrating. But it is the writer's property, after all, and he can do what he what he wishes with it. Yeah. Um, all right, so we're running a little short on time here, and I did want to give you a chance to talk about any other – you have another book, right, that's coming out this year? And I don't know. Is there anything else you want to mention? Yeah. 
sometime uh, soon I have a, another sequel coming out to my my memoirs. Now, I'm not famous enough for memoirs, so what I do is I drop other names that are famous. This one is called Screensaver 2, T-O-O, Hollywood Strikes Back. And it's a sequel to the memoir that I had in 2016 called Screensaver, Private Stories of Public Hollywood. Because I started off as a, a press agent for movies, and then I quit that job and I became a movie critic, and then later a, a producer of television documentaries and things. And so I had an awful lot of run-ins with Hollywood celebrities who were touring all over the country. I was based in Boston. And I guess they figured if they're in Boston, nobody's ever going to hear about it. So although we did publicity, some of the adventures we had after the publicity was done are kind of interesting. I mean, nobody blew up any buildings or anything, but I do have some nice stories about people like Jane Fonda or John Voight and folks like that who who had some wonderful adventures after they'd finished doing their publicity talks. And Screensaver 2 uh, continues those stories. When I, I write about uh, being held captive in a building when people were trying to rob footage that had been shot by William Friedkin for the Brinks job and other little adventures. They're both out from Bear Manor Media, which is a print-on-demand publisher that handles a lot of stuff for show business, entertainment, and pop culture. And they'll be available through Amazon or from Bear Manor Media's website. But Amazon is a place where I think most people choose to go. Alas. Hmm. Um, and then I also did want to ask you, what's your deepest, darkest secret? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, that's a very good question, and I'm not going to answer it. Um, let's see. I did also want to mention, um, there was this funny thing about Stan Lee. You mentioned earlier that he would, uh, go around to Harlan's, uh, public appearances because he wanted to pick up some techniques for public speaking. Yeah. This is back when Stan was just becoming really famous when the silver age is, is finally being discovered by the public. Harlan was doing tons and tons of public appearances and he kept on looking into the audience and seeing Stan there. Of course, they'd known each other for years. Now, Stan, doubts that. He doesn't say it's a lie or anything. Stan would never, you know, make an accusation of that sort. But uh, he said it was just coincidence if he showed up, but he doesn't remember actually um, uh, purposely stalking Harlan. I, I don't know what the story was. You know, both men are friends, and it's very hard to uh, to go countering one against the other. Uh, but, but Stan has his own thing going now with Stan Lee, you know, his um, POW entertainment, and, and also he, he's still at, what, age 95 or 96, the youngest kid in the room. And he and Harlan are still friends, and uh, uh, I don't know what the story was between them, but I do know they're two of the most interesting people I've ever known. And uh, whatever it took to make them both interesting, I'm glad it worked. What do you make of the story of Harlan facing off against the gangsters with a gun? Mike Licavoli, who was yeah. uh, one of the Los Angeles families, I don't I. I, I would tend to believe it, but there's no way to check on this sub. But it was such a good story, I couldn't keep it out. Uh, Licavoli's date name does turn up. I mean, Harlan was absolutely right about who he was. I, I double-checked some of the mob stories, and, and he was absolutely there. Um, but Harlan, you know, has always felt that he's going to survive no matter what happens. It's this, it's his spirit of essentially give the world some goosing if it needs it. He's always been a provocateur. He's always been somebody who always thought he would survive. I guess, I think Robert Silverberg said Harlan doesn't know fear or something very close to that. Harlan knows to be afraid, but he kind of ignores it. And I guess that's a real kind of bravery out there. You suggest toward the end of the book that he was diagnosed actually as bipolar. Yeah, and it's a very informal diagnosis, but he'd been always, well, listen, anybody who flies off the handle as much as he did uh, appears to be bipolar. He and I discussed that at, at, at uh, several different occasions, and that would explain an awful lot until he got his, his meds down. I think the, the bipolar condition might have explained a lot of his personality shifts. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you have any idea? I don't know. Or has he talked at all about if he had been treated earlier, how, what sort of, uh, how that might have impacted the trajectory of his career and his life and so on? No, we really didn't go into that. You know, there's so much discussion now about bipolar conditions, whether it's Stephen Fry doing it very openly in England on British television or people here. I'm discovering a number of my friends have bipolar conditions that I didn't know, but now that I know it, it explains a lot. I don't even think that medical science knew an awful lot about it until fairly recently. They're finally able to diagnose it and call it the condition that it is, but I doubt if any kind of accuracy can be ascribed to it. Um, I mean, for more than 10 years, I don't think we've had a whole lot of people really knowing what bipolarity is. Hmm. 
And I guess just the one other thing I want to ask then at the end here is um, what kind of feedback have you gotten on this book? I mean, have you gotten reactions from different people or reviews or anything? I've gotten some very good reviews. Um, Locus Magazine, which is the, uh, the major science fiction uh, trade publication, has given it a glowing review. Uh, I've gotten little bits of, of things that are coming in, but, you know, it takes a while. Unlike a movie, a book takes a while to assemble uh, coverage. We've had a number of, of good comments on Amazon, on uh, Harlan's own website, the Art Deco Dining Pavilion. Uh, and I, I think the best way to describe how successful the book is, is one, it's selling fairly well, and two, I've only got one troll. And you think if it sucked, I'd have more trolls. So maybe there's something really good about it. It's a lit fuse, and it's available both from Amazon and from Nesfa Press, N-E-S-F-A dot org. And there's a link you can follow to buy the thing. And uh, I, I really want to put food on my table and, and, and buy a new car at some point. So please, <laughs> uh, as many people can buy this thing, please do it. And Dave, you're a real, a real peach for having me on the show. So, so wait, who's your, or like, what's going on with your one troll? Like, what, uh, what's, what's the story with that? I, I don't acknowledge the existence of the troll except to say I have one. You know, everybody has to have one troll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of, you know, if I didn't, I think I was doing something wrong. Harlan, of course, collects them like a magnet in iron filings. But, uh, you know, maybe, maybe someday if I'm really good, I'll have two trolls. <laughs> okay. And then just a quick question. What's your deepest, darkest secret? You've already asked me that, and it's very clever of you to bring it up again. Uh, let's see. Let me make something up that actually sort of applies. When I was 13 years old, I shoplifted some batteries from a hardware store. Uh, and unlike Harlan shoplifting books from a bookstore, I never went back and gave them the batteries back. And the hardware store is now out of business, for which I take full responsibility. <laughs> All right. See, that's good. See, yeah, I, I see, see what I did there? I brought it around and caught you off guard. That's exactly what you do. And uh, what I can also do is simply stop talking now because you got another minute and a half of dead air to fill. <laughs> All right. No, I think that's – yeah, I think that's a good place to, to end things. So, um, so yeah, we've been speaking with Nat Segalov. And this book, again, it's called A Lit Fuse, The Provocative Life of Harlan Ellison. So, Nat, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be here, and I, I really appreciate your helping me through this new technology. Uh, as a science fiction writer, I should have known that a long time ago. But I, I so appreciate the attention you're giving, and I really appreciate the fans of Harlan, and I, I'm just very thankful that we're able to talk like this. And that was our interview. So a big thanks again to Nat Segalov for joining us on the show. And as promised, here's a short clip of Nat interviewing Harlan Ellison. Uh, you wrote in your horn book. I'm going to read you a quote, and I know you have heard it. My philosophy of life is that the meek shall inherit nothing but debasement, frustration, and ignoble deaths. You know the quote. That yeah. There are, uh, that's a, a prag pragmatic and somewhat... Uh, downbeat. Irritated. Yeah, downbeat, but also it's, it's inflammatory in the sense that it inspires people not to be victims, not to be downtrodden. Right. So it, it, it both recognizes their case and kicks them in the ass at the same time. But it's the use of the word meek. Mm -hmm. Meek means pipsqueak, means, you know, Mr. Yeah. Milk Toast, malleable, usable, a tool. And I have spent my entire career telling people you are worth more than they tell you you are worth. Yes. You are unique. You are like a rare jewel existing in the universe in the number of one. And seek, and even if you don't find, at least the seeking will enrich you more than being meek and accepting your lot. Some people have more to offer than others. Yeah, it is not an even playing field. Eleanor Roosevelt is a high standard <laughs> to, to reach. And if all you want to be is someone on Dancing with the Stars and get your five minutes of FaceTime, then you don't really deserve much more than that five minutes of FaceTime. I remember years ago I sent you a book by Bill Henry called In Defense, of, In Defense of Elitism. Yes. One of the things that impressed me with his writing was he said something to the effect of everybody's contribution is important, but not everybody's contribution has value. I would have to think about that a while. That's, that's a deep thought. That's one of those deep thoughts like shame and guilt. I don't have a ready answer for everything. 
How much can one person achieve in a lifetime? An infinitude. What about you? Well, whatever it is I've achieved, I've achieved. And if, if it's of value, if it's of value, it will adhere. It will maintain. It will, it will proceed. It will have an effect. Uh, I know I've had an effect on many writers. I know I've had an effect on many social causes. I've had an effect. As I am fond of saying, I've been out there sucking up their bullets for 78 years. And if what I've done is of value, it'll stick. These things have a life, have, have, have a life term of their own. Mm -hmm. Things that, that last will last. Didn't you say your epitaph would be, I was here for a while, and for, mattered, a while so I mattered. Mattered. for a while I mattered. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, is that pragmatism or humility? Pragmatism. Pragmatism. For a while I was here. And for a while I mattered. Okay, and so again, that was a clip of our guest Nat Segaloff interviewing Harlan Ellison. So a big thanks again to Nat for letting us use that. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Artorius01, who writes simply, Excellent show. Save the Expanse. And yeah, I certainly agree with that. So again, if you're not watching The Expanse, definitely do that. And definitely go check out our panel on Cancelled Sci-Fi Classics back in episode 248 to learn more about what you can do to help keep great science fiction shows like The Expanse on the air. I also want to give a special thank you to Ren H., William Lee, and Rob Kirkwood, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. And I also want to thank Michael DePlater, who just increased his pledge amount. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Maria Liu for sponsoring today's show. Remember to check out her new sci-fi thriller, Warcross, over at playwarcross.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.